You're listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we have a really cool guest that needs no introduction. He is the former host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, the most selling real estate author of all times, and he is the founder of Open Door Capital. Brandon Turner, uh, so excited. Welcome to the show. Dude, what an introduction. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I have no data to actually back up the best-selling real estate author of all time, but uh, you know, I don't know any other like books that have sold millions of copies that are in this specifically real estate space. So we're going to go with it and just pad my ego with that one. That's okay. You know what? I was so I was wondering this before the show, like and and it might be Kiyosaki, but like I wonder how many millionaires you've made. You might be the most millionaire making man of all times. You know what I mean? Like, I think about it and and I just you know, it kind of leads into my first question, which is like, is, did you expect all this? Did you think all this? But like, no. I think about, you know, if I had, you know, one sentence to say to you, you'd be like, oh, I'm a multimillionaire because of everything you did, because of the books you, you wrote and, and the, the podcast. You're, and I'm sure you get that 20 times a day. And, you know, just with what real estate has done in the market and, and the education you provided over the last decade, like you got to be, I mean, you or Robert got to be like the most millionaire making men of all time. Right. Yeah. I feel like I don't, I don't hold a candle to Kiyosaki. I think that guy's changed so many lives, including my own, but no, it's, it's crazy. No, I never expected this. And I mean, like right place, right time. We launched a podcast right around the time where podcasts started taking off. It's funny though. When I started the podcast, I was like, well, we missed the podcast boat, but <laughs> yeah. you know, we'll, we'll hit the tail end of it here. Like I just assumed like, like I just had no idea that podcasts were going to be what they ended up becoming and that bigger pockets would become the behemoth. So, uh, Furthermore, it's funny because I was actually, I had this conversation with somebody yesterday there. I was like, I actually don't know if I changed that. Like I, I, I talk on a show and I ask questions. It's like the guests that change everyone's life, right? Because like you hear people's stories and that's what changes. So maybe I facilitated some of that, but even that, like, you know, it, it, it's all like just hundreds and hundreds of stories. When people just listen to them, it just changes lives. It's why Rich Dad Poor Dad was so powerful. It was a story. That's what changes yeah. lives. It's crazy. Absolutely. When I started this show, I remember asking some friends, I was like, oh, you know, how many units do you think I need to go start a show? And they're like, well, are you the guest or are you asking the questions? I'm like, I'm asking the yeah. questions. Like, well, you don't really need to know anything then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have that many when I started the bigger pockets podcast. I think I had, I mean, I think I had 25 units maybe at the time, something like that. And most of those were in a one apartment or maybe 30 units, 25 were in one apartment building. So like, yeah, you just ask good questions, be curious. In fact, I think that actually makes for a really good host. Like, because like you're at the level that most listeners are. I think that's why people like the bigger pockets podcast. Cause me and Josh were kind of just like everyone else, just figuring it out and it worked. Yeah, absolutely. So for, for our listeners that maybe, you know, I like, I like to think we're making converts over here. Right. So everybody who's ever been in, in, interested in real estate investing has knows who you are, but for those that are just like brand new to real estate investing, could you give a little summary of your, your background and what you're doing today? Sure, man. Uh, so I got into real estate when I was 21, I bought a duplex. Well, I bought a house. I, I rented out the bedrooms. Then I sold that, made a little money, bought a duplex, fixed it up, lived in half of it, rented the half out, realized at the time, I'm like, man, I can like, you can make money off owning rental properties. So a lot of people collect like Pokemon cards or fine wine. I just started collecting rental units. So then over the next seven or eight years, I got up to that 30 ish units, uh, quit my job, 
I was like, I'm retired. I'm done. And so I sat on the couch for a few months and realized that was pretty boring. Uh, then I started kind of like, I'm like, well, maybe I can tell other people what I've been doing. So I started a little blog that in, that led me to meet Josh Dorkin, the founder of uh, Bigger Pockets. It was a forum, just a forum at the time in a, in a small blog. And we became friends and we're like, let's start a podcast and start talking about real estate. So that started that. And then um, we did that for nine years. Uh, and then a few years ago, in the middle of that, I decided that I had more capability than what I was living in my life. Like, I kind of felt like I was just kind of coasting. And so I, uh, decided I'm going to get heavy into real estate, uh, like syndication, like, which is where you raise private money from, uh, investors, like a bunch of people pulled their money together and then we buy big stuff. So, uh, now I own, or, you know, we run a company that owns somewhere in the 7,500 unit range, uh, about $650 million of real estate. And I am the head of that snake. So we just slither along and keep buying properties, both mobile home parks and apartment complexes. And, got 60 employees, something like that, give or take. And we're taking over the world, man. At least we're trying. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. So going back, like kind of knowing what you know now, you know, when you started, you know, it was great. It was a great opportune time. You know, you started the podcast and that, that started, if you were to start over today in today's environment, or, or if you're speaking to the new guy who's looking to become Brandon Turner starting in 2022, what's your advice for them? Yeah, man. Uh, a couple of things. One, I, I think when people, well, first of all, when people are starting to get into the real estate thing, I think they get overwhelmed because there's so many different ways to invest. It's, it's like you could do this or this or apartments or Airbnb or whatever. And I was that way a little bit too. I kind of jumped around to a few different things. Uh, I wish I would have just realized at the time, like it all works. It doesn't really matter which one you choose. It all works. So just pick something and just, what can you become world-class at? And that takes time. That takes years, but what can you devote your time to becoming world-class at? I would have like yelled at myself, like stick to something, get really good at that thing. Uh, but at the same time, I would have encouraged myself to not get complacent uh, and to like, you know, if I wanted to go into rentals, which I did, like, don't just stay with small deals for long, like scale, like build something bigger that scale that scares you a little bit. Uh, like you buy, a fourplex great can you buy a 10 unit next time great you bought the 10 unit can you buy a 20 unit and then i would encourage myself back then to like really spend more time networking like i didn't realize just how important like that whole phrase of like your net worth is your network actually how true that actually is uh and so i would i would definitely encourage like just more conferences more coffee dates, more like hanging out at the bar with a bunch of real estate people having conversations like that stuff most of the most of like those pivot moments in my life where like I was going one direction and then I changed directions happened because of a late night conversation at a conference or a meetup. Uh, those, right. those moments change your life. And uh, I just encourage more of that. Awesome. So as you, as you start to scale and you get out of, you know, in the early days, you can, you can tackle these issues kind of like solo, right? You can go buy a rental property by yourself. It, it helps if you network with wholesalers and, and people that can help you buy the ones or twos. But when you start to go buy apartment buildings or mobile home parks, you, you, you need to raise capital. And so yeah. that kind of, that kind of rolls us into like, like with the internet, like it's, it's, it's a shoe and we're going to create content and that's how we're going to get people to know, like, and trust us and move forward. So one thing that I'm, I've been curious about and, and I've really, so when we met at Limitless in, in um, Arizona a few weeks ago, I, we were a few months ago, maybe now 
you were on stage with Pace and Thatch and y'all were talking about how to build a brand with social media. And I came home and hired a marketing guy and we just started pumping out content right there. But one of the questions that me and my marketing guy like debate back forth all the time is like the content that we're creating, right? So we want to be large apartment syndicators, but we also, we flip houses and we have rental properties. So do we want to cast like a really wide net and do we want to just go after anybody and everybody or do we want to like really, really niche down? So like I read it, like I think Joe Fairless's book, it's like, oh, I, I, I wish I would have niched down. I wish I had just focused on the apartment community. But my thought process is, and we've seen this with you and with several other big names is like, you know, somebody starting out or somebody starting to gain interest, they might not, they might not like, click on the link or check out a video about a part. I remember one time I was listening to, to bigger pockets. I was like running, I was training for a triathlon. I was listening to bigger pockets go on and on. And, and um, Jake and Gino came on and, and I had mm. one house at the time, maybe two. And they, it like the headline was like 1200 apartment units. I was like, skip, you know, like yeah. what, what yeah. can I, how can I connect with that guy? Right. And, and so, so that's my thought process in the, in the content creation is to cast a wide net appeal to everybody and they might find their way and go, you know, to where we want them to go. So I'm just curious on what your feedback yeah. is about niche content or wide net or how you feel about that. Yeah, man, that's such a great question. I never been asked that, but here, here's how I look at it. Yeah. First of all, yeah, like, I think you hit the nail on the head. If you were trying to be really targeted, like I'm going to teach apartment people how to, you know, how to do apartments. The problem is, first of all, you're training people who are not actually going to invest with you. They're going to go build their own business. Right. So, um, there, there is that. I mean, there is, so I, I'm a much bigger believer in like casting the widest net possible, getting as many people in the world to know, like, and trust you. And then you can do what you want within that group. If you want to write a book, you can write a book and sell to right. part of that group. If you want to, uh, if you want to raise money, you can get another group will raise money. If, if you want to JV with people on flips, there's a group of people in that group that'll, that'll appeal to you. The problem is that the, when you're too general, it's really hard to get people to follow you because like, if I were, if I were to go to you and and I'm like, hey, man, I am a coach. I'm a business coach. And I would like to coach you. You'd be like, OK, well, great. Thanks, man. But if I was like, hey, man, I'm a business coach who works with uh, how old are you? Well, yeah, probably like 30 something. 36. 36. Yeah. So for the same age, like I actually work with guys in their mid thirties who are building syndication businesses to create better content so that they can uh, reach more people. Take via. <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, take my, take it. Like, like, cause I, I got so specific. So there is a degree in which you will follow me because I'm specific. You wouldn't follow me if I'm general, if I'm just out there on social media, just going, I help everybody do everything. Like, why would you follow me unless I'm really funny or, or good looking, which I am neither. So instead you want to be specific enough that people are like, that is my person that I'm going to benefit by following them. Uh, and so it's a fine line between being too general. And I think that some people make that mistake. They're just like, there's like, I help everybody. Uh, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm real estate investing for financial freedom. That is a very specific, but very wide niche. Like I help people use real estate to obtain financial freedom. Now they follow me. And now from there, I can be like, oh, by the way, and I'll, I'll be like, hey, if you're an accredited real estate investor, listen up, I got something for you. Now I've, uh, what Perry Marshall calls uh, racking the shotgun. It's a great book called 8020 Sales and Marketing. Uh, but he uses this analogy of racking the shotgun. Uh, and I can't remember the exact reason he used that, but basically if like, you walk into a crowded area and like, like rack a shotgun, like certain people are gonna like turn and look at you because they recognize that sound. 
Uh, that's the idea behind um, when I'm like, Hey, if you're a millionaire, listen to, listen to this. Now those people will come over and listen to me because I identified them, but I didn't, uh, I didn't, I attracted everybody. So I collect all the fish and I throw the bad fish out or, yeah. you know, I always separate say, get them. The, let's get the eyeballs. Let's get as many eyeballs as we can. Yeah. We'll figure out what to do with them later. We might, you know what I mean? I always, I always say like, at, at some point the law could change and syndications could become illegal and we start selling sure. coaching program. But if we have the eyeballs, we can do whatever we do yeah. with them. You know what I mean? Yes. Like what, that point, you, you know, Josh, Josh Dorkin taught me this years and years ago when I first met him and I, I came on the bigger pockets. Like the first thing I was like, you know, talking to Josh, even before like I came on board, I was like just chatting with Josh. I'm like, dude, why aren't you selling coaching and, and like high, you know, high ticket coaching and training like all the gurus. And he's like, because I'm not, he's like, cause I don't want to sell that. He's like, yeah, I could make some money doing that. But he said something, I don't know if he said it this eloquently, but like he said, if you have the, the favor of tens of millions of people, you can do anything you want in the future, but to gain the favor of tens of millions of people, you can't go and sell $50,000 coaching programs and courses, right? Like there is a, like once you charge money, then things start getting, yeah, people start second guessing you. They don't trust you quite as much. And so instead, if you can be the guy that just, no, I just give, I just give information. I host a podcast. It's free. And if people know, this is a huge thing. I'm I'm a big believer that people should know what your hidden motive is because they're looking anyway. So you might as well be open about it. Right. Right. I'm like, Hey, I will teach you everything about real estate because I know that 5% of you are rich enough to someday invest with me. And then we grow our wealth together. 95% of you, I'm just going to make you a millionaire. So then you'll invest with me. So either way, we're all going to invest with me in the future, but at least I'm going to make you, if you're not a millionaire yet, that's okay. I'm going to teach you how to get there. So then you can invest with me. Uh, and now people are like, okay, well, yeah, I see his selfishness there. I understand why he's doing what he's doing and I'm okay with that. I will take advantage of his selflessness and I will become a millionaire. And then I probably won't invest with him, but that's okay. I took advantage of him. I'm like, great. Take advantage of me. Cause I've raised $200 million on Instagram in the past two years by doing exactly that, by helping people uh, become a millionaire. And then some of them are like, man, I mean, cause here's the truth, right? If you're in your, you're in my shoes, right? You and I are raising money for big real estate deals. It is incredibly difficult to do what we do, right? Like the, the amount of like, deals we have to underwrite, which take forever. And the amount of broker relationships we got to build and the amount of all this effort that goes into building a big real estate business. Um, and then we give most of our profits away to our, to our limited partners. We don't even make the bulk of the money. We give most of that money to our partners. So like for people who are millionaires, it's actually better for them to just dump their money with people like you and I, right. than it is to go do their own deals. I would argue that um, nine times out of 10, unless they're doing like house flipping and a really active way to invest. But if they're just trying to get passive real estate, you're buying duplexes or triplexes, they will make a better return by sure. doing 10 times less work investing with us, but they just got to be accredited in most cases. And that's where most of my passive investors come from. They come to me and they're like, I want to, I want to burn houses. I want to flip houses. I want to do this. And then they're like, this is a huge pain in the ass. Could you just give me a really good return for my money? That's what it is. I I did this. I did this deal one time. I bought this house at auction. So first of all, I learned how to buy at auction, which was scary. And I had to like read some stuff on it. And I, I went to the courthouse steps. I buy this house for $15,000. I'd heard it was coming out for 15 grand. Uh, I couldn't even go in the house, but I had to buy, I had to look through the windows 
I buy the house at foreclosure auction. I then have to pay cash for it and a cashier's check and it was all weird. I got the thing done. I then go inside the house and it's pretty cool. And I went and hired a bunch of contractors and struggled for like nine months to fix this property up. It took forever and it was lots of over the drama and contractors being jerks and all that. I finally get it done and I put it on Airbnb and that works okay for a few months, but it's this constant headache of like, I don't know how the remote control works and I can't get the front door to open. And I'm like, that's because you didn't press the open button and like just driving me nuts. So finally I quit that. And I'm like, all right, screw Airbnb. I'm going to go traditional around this one. I put a normal tenant in it. They were there for a year. They trashed the place when they left. I had nothing but drama, like just irritating, sold the property a few years later. You know, I had the whole thing for like three and a half years. I sold it. And I sold it for $75,000, way more than I paid for it. Now, most people would be like, yeah, that's why real estate's awesome. You, you worked hard, you won. I did win. But I averaged my return over that period of time. I sat down and I did the math after I was done. And I averaged 15% per year on that investment. That's what I like. If you take into account all of the cash flow I made and the, the sale at the end, I made 15% off of all of that drama and work. And it was worth it because I was broke. But sure. I looked at the end and I was like, man, I, I could have just invested in somebody else's deal and got the same or better with a hundred times, a thousand times less work and stress and drama. Because like, if you're doing it on yourself, like all by yourself, you are competing against Walker Meadows, my COO, who's the best COO on the planet. You're competing with Jay, who's the best acquisitions guy on the planet. You're competing with like my entire team who each person is so specifically good at that thing that they are good at that you over there are trying to do everything by yourself and be good at everything competing against me. Who's got a team of 60 people that's out there just killing it. And then we give most of our profits away. So again, you and I like for rich people are probably better off dumping their money with trusted syndicators, you know, maybe several different ones and over several different deals to diversify, but that's yeah. Make money the way that you make money and then give it to guys who have teams that can go and grow it for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think a lot of people come to that realization. Yeah. Um, so I got a, I got a, another one I, I've been thinking of. So on the show at the end of the, at the end of bigger pockets episodes, you always ask like, what makes the difference between those that are successful and those that are never get started or, or give up or, or whatever. So I got a modification that I want to ask you. What do sure. you think, what do you think differentiates the people that are moderately successful so like, it's easy to get to one or 2 million to like that breakout success, the 30 yep. million, the, the hundred million. What, what do you think the differentiator there is? Hmm. You know, I, I think it really comes down to, I've been teaching this at keynotes. I mean, I did it at limitless. I talked about this concept. I think it really comes down to the mindset at which you operate your business. And when I say mindset, I'm talking about the way you solve problems. So if you want to grow from like doing one deal a month, let's just say, let's say you're a house flipper. Let's say you're flipping houses, right? If you want to go from one deal a year to one deal a month, it's not 12 times more work for you. It's a different way of solving the problem of investing in flips, right? It's like, you have to think differently. You have to lead differently. And the same thing if you, so for example, if you want to flip 
a house a, a month, I'm sorry, a house a year, you can do all your own work. You're going to probably go and paint and do the roof and, you know, go to Home Depot and pick out the curtains and all that stuff. You're going to do yourself and you'll do one a year. My very first flip, it took me nine and a half months to finish because I did it all myself with my wife. Nothing wrong with that, but there's a limit to it, right? Next level, I call it the project manager. So that was like DIY approach. The next mindset is like the project manager. That That's you're like, hey, I'm going to hire a plumber and I'm going to hire a flooring guy. And I'm going to hire, you know, my brother in law to come over and paint the outside. And then we're going to do a house every single month. Like you could do a house a month if you're project managing it, but you're still there. You're still working a lot, but you can probably do a house a month. Now let's elevate the mindset even higher. We go to what I call the COO level. It's like, you're the chief operating officer. You run a business. So now you hire a full-time acquisitions guy. You hire a project manager. You maybe bring construction in house. Possibly you have a bookkeeper. You have a money raiser who goes out and deals with all the hard money lenders. And you got like, and you're managing all these people. Well, now you could do a house a week because you're like, you're sitting there, you got, you got, I mean, if you had a full-time acquisitions person, they should be able to buy a house a week, especially if they're sending out thousands of direct mail letters every week or whatever, like that's their sole job. And you are the COO. You are the leader of that group. You are managing the day-to-day you're working still a lot of hours, but now you can do a house a week. Now there's one more level I like to get to. And I, I call it like the energy or like the brand, like think Richard Branson or Elon Musk, like they bring their energy to a business, but they don't even run it. They have a, they hire some guy to build the business for them the or they buy some business and the business runs right now. If you're that, that's how you become a billionaire um, by doing almost no work, right? Because you bring the energy. So the difference that separates people from doing a, a flip a year and a flip a day just comes down to the mindset that you approach the problem with. And I'm not just flipping, I'm talking rentals. I'm talking, you know, starting an ice cream shop or doing a dog walking business, anything at all. Your growth is only limited by the stuff between your ears and the way that you use that to approach problems. That's it. That's the only thing slowing you down. So from a, from a tactical standpoint, how do you move up that? What do, I've, I've heard that presentation before. You call it the, the leadership hierarchy or the four levels? Yeah, something like that, like the four levels of uh, leadership, I think is what I've called it, but I need a better name than that. But whatever. How, do you, how do you migrate up that? From, just from a resource standpoint, right? Yeah, like the, yeah. like the, the guy, the DIY guy probably doesn't have the money to hire a bunch yeah. of people to do it, you know? Yeah, it, it's, it's true. And I'll give you a couple of suggestions on that. So, how do you elevate up that mindset thing? This is, this is important. Number one, if you have the money, you can buy your way there, right? I mean, if you had a $10 million sitting around, you can go hire a CEO to run your business and they're going to hire the project manager level and they're going to hire the DIY guys, like kind of ground floor. And if you're Richard Branson, you could just go and hire that out. That's one option. Uh, option number two is, and I'll say that's only one option. A lot of people just think I can't do it because I don't have the money, but let me try to shift that, that limiting belief to say, you don't need the money. What you need is you need the ability to motivate people. Uh, you need to be a, the ability to have the vision and then motivate people. Now, maybe you can't be the energy of the brand right away. It's possible. That does take some risk and some money, but the truth is if you have a business, it should generate the profits needed to pay for the team, right? Otherwise you don't have a business, right? So I had this really smart guy once say to me, he, we were telling him at, when I was at bigger pockets about all the things we had, the cap, the money we had in the bank, the, the number of marketing people we had, the number of developers we had, like, you know, web developers. And then we were telling him what we were going to do with those people. And he finally stops and he holds up his hand. He's like, guys, stop telling me what you have and what you can do with it. Tell me what is possible. And then what do you need to get there? 
he's like, it's, it's a reverse. You don't look at it from what you have and then make your plan from there. You make your plan and then you build, uh, you build up what you need to get there. So in the same way, okay, let's say you have no money and you want to flip 52 houses a year. So in that case, you need to a be able to motivate people to come and work with you because now you're in order to do 52 houses a year, you're probably going to have to be at that COO level. You're going to have to build a company. How do you build a company when you don't have a lot of money? Well, you bring in partners instead. You give equity if you have to. Uh, maybe you bring in interns to do the thing for you, right? Maybe you pay people based, based on JV stuff or based on, uh, you know, profit splits. Maybe there's a number of ways to do this, but imagine you were like, you went to your, your three of your buddies, right? And maybe this is buddies is usually a bad idea, but let's just say for argument that you went through your buddies. You're like, guys, this is where we're headed. We're doing 52 flips a year. We're going to average $50,000 per flip. We are going to make, what is that? 50 times five, 50,000 times 50. Is that, is that 2.5 million? We're going to go with that. We're going to make two and a half million dollars in this business. It's going to be amazing. And I want to share this with you guys. So here's what we're going to do. You, Bobby, you are in charge of acquisitions because you've been a sales guy for T-Mobile for the last 10 years. You're amazing at talking to, you know, at, at talking to people. You're in acquisitions. You're going to build the funnel. You're going to do all that. And then you're going to get 10% of the profits, man. And you're going to make, you know, a quarter million dollars this year. You're making 50,000 right now at T-Mobile. So we're going to make you a quarter million dollars this year. You know, Jerry, you are phenomenal at the money stuff. You work at a bank. You get financing better than anybody else I know. And you're making seven thousand dollars a year. I'm going to pay you 10% of the profits. You're going to make a quarter million this year as well. So Jerry, I need you to go out there and get, you know, whatever the, the, do the money side. You see what I'm saying? Like, surely you go out and do this thing. And now you have three or four people, maybe they're interns, whatever. And now you rally them together and you say, that's where we're going 52 houses a, uh, a year. We're going to buy a house a week this year. I'm going to lead you guys there. And then you just march and you just go and you keep them aligned because you're a good leader and you keep them motivated. And then they only make money when the thing works. And then as you start bringing money in, now you can afford to hire more people with the, with the money that brought in. But in the beginning, you might have to just give equity and that's okay. And you can renegotiate later if you have to, or you'll lose people, you'll gain people, you'll find better people. Uh, but uh, you do not need money to start thinking like an, like the energy. You don't need money to think like a COO. It's literally, it starts with the mindset and then you will figure out the best path there. Absolutely. You'd mentioned uh, that it's not a good idea to work with the friends. You want to elaborate on that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's not that it's not a good idea to work with friends. It's just that I'm a big believer that you should not hire for convenience. What I, what I mean by that is so many times in my life, I have been like, okay, what do I need in my business? I need an acquisitions person. Who do I know that's a, that would be good at that role? Or even worse, I have a buddy and I'm like, hey, buddy, I like you. We should do business together. I wonder what you could do for me. Like, it's just such a, like like versus this is the exact role I need in my organization that is going to get me to a whatever goal that I have set. I'm going to cast the widest net possible. I'm going to screen a bunch of people. I'm going to test them. I'm going to find a way to see if they're actually good. And then the very best of the best of the best in that role, I'm going to put them in that spot because they are the best person on the planet for that. And you do not know, like, what are the chances that you know the best person on the planet for whatever role that you're doing? It's one in 7 billion, right? So instead, if you can, if you can define the role now, maybe 
you know, you're winning the lottery and your best friend happens to be the best person for that role, but I would almost guarantee it's not. So it's just the way you approach that hiring thing is don't approach it from convenience because somebody is there because somebody has a pulse approach it because you have a defined role and you are going to go find the single greatest person on the planet to do that. And that is literally why, like a lot of people ask me like, like what's set apart open door capital, why we've grown so fast in the last four years, but you know, almost a billion dollars of real estate and like uh, more than, more than anything else, it is that thing. It's that we have been able to define a vision. And then because of my role in the real estate world, we get a thousand people or more to apply for every internship. Even that's like unpaid internship. We get like a thousand people to apply. And these are not like 21 year old kids that are just out of college going, I'm looking for an internship. These are like, I'm a 35 year old executive at uh, wall street, you know, private equity shop. I will come work for you for free, Brandon. Like, it's ridiculous the level of people that we get. And then out of a thousand people, we, we have a thing called a gauntlet. We whittle people down with test after test after test. They have to run through that gauntlet. And at the end of the day, we'll end up with like two people or three people and they are world class. So the number one benefit to being a quote unquote cringy, uh, cringe alert coming, but influencer is not your ability to raise money. It's your ability to attract the best people. people on the planet. That's the benefit of growing your Instagram and your platform. It's not the money. It's not the ego. It's the people that you bring in because the people are the ones that are going to get you to your goal. That's it. And that's why we've been so successful. Awesome. I love it. Let's talk about the economy. Mm. <laughs> the economy. <laughs> With thoughts, feelings, concerns. Yeah, man. All right. Let's talk about the economy. Uh, the market obviously has had some rough, a rough year and the stock market, especially real estate's still doing great. Right. But, um, real estate is showing signs that we're probably uh, topping over the edge of that roller coaster. Uh, I do not believe we're going to see an 08 again. There's just too many people that still want to buy too many people with money. Um, not enough inventory in the country. They didn't build enough for a decade. There is, I don't foresee a massive problem there. Uh, interest rates are going up. The government is actively trying to slow down real estate from growing any faster. Like real estate's like the real estate is the, like that and gas prices are the beacon that the world looks at when they are thinking about inflation, right? There's two things that people really think about. They're not thinking, Oh, my Cheerios cost $3 instead of two seventy-five, even though that's true. That doesn't affect them. They're thinking my house is now worth 400 and it was worth 300. And they're thinking, cause they go to the gas pump every week. I used to pay $3. Now I'm paying $4. Those are the two things that everyone looks at. So the government is actively trying to stop gas prices and actively trying to stop real estate from going up because that makes people happy when those things don't go up. Well, it makes real estate investors happy when the real estate goes up. So therefore the government is going to slow down real estate. They will just keep raising rates until real estate slows down. Uh, they will still, uh, they still don't have enough real estate. So is it going to stop? No. Is Are we going to have 30 offers that are all above asking on every property listed? No. We're going to go back to the, probably the normal days. I think of you list a property. It sits for a couple of weeks. Then some guy comes and offers you $5,000 less and then you take it. It's just a, a normal market. And uh, I think that's where we're headed. Uh, of course, there's no guarantees here, but that's my thoughts. I think that we're going to be fine. I think interest rates are going up. I think it's going to make cash flow harder to get. And I think that inflation is, I don't think they're going to really stop inflation. I think they printed too much money to, to stop it at this point. That train has too much momentum. So I think we're going to see rents climb, especially in cities like Austin and Nashville and Denver and Seattle and areas where uh, 
especially areas like, like uh, red states where everyone's fleeing the blue states and going to red states. I think we're going to see those rents continue to rise because it's just supply and demand. They don't have enough housing. I mean, I looked at this data on Austin recently. In Austin, 150 people a day are moving to Austin on average, and they're only building like, there's like 30 units a day on average. So like, what does that mean long-term? If that many people are moving to an area and that's how much building they're doing, like, what does that mean? And there's not enough to begin with. It means that supply and demand will force those rents up. And uh, we're going to see more and more rent control come in. Uh, I think that's a, definitely a thing that's going to happen, which I'm not, I'm not afraid of that. Like, it'll be fine. But uh, what do you think? What's the economy going to do? So I'm, I'm right there with you. So I, I think our supply shortage and, and the, the demographic demand growth, I, I don't think we're heading into anything like 2008. But more importantly, I, I think that your and my business structure is probably a little more sound than than a lot of others, right? Like I always, um, I, you know, I've, I've always kind of mobile home parks and apartment communities are, are more recession resistant assets, you know, as, as interest rates rise and, and as there, it creates a barrier to home ownership, it's only going to drive up rental demand. We always do buy in red states for that reason, you know, minimize rent control and, and kind of, you know, that's typically where the population is increasing. And so I'm not afraid of it. You know, I, I, a lot of people, ask me all the time about the economy. Is it going to crash? I'm like, well, I hope so. I mean, that'd be a great opportunity. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I think there is, there's such opportunity in a recession. Like, and, and we all know this in, in, in our, in our heads, or we've heard it before that millionaires are created in times of recession. So many millionaires were created in the great depression. And then the 08, 09, I mean, think of how many people like became millionaires because they're like, you know what, I'm going to jump into real estate in 08, 09. Like made, people made a killing. Now people lose money when you invest at the peak, right. And then it falls. Sometimes people lose money that way. But like, there's tremendous opportunity in a recession or in a difficult economic time. Uh, one, because it just makes people stronger. Like, it's like when you grow up on the streets, of New York, back in like, you know, 1850, like you're strong because you have to be, you're a brawler. You're in there. Like, like economic difficulty creates strong people, which create good times. Uh, also, like if you want to make money during a recession, just do three things. Number one, like be smart, like things like you have to look around, you have to know the data, you have to know what's going on. You have to be smart. You have to be reading. You have to be uh, connecting with people. You have to be smart. Number two, you have to be adaptable because in an economic uncertainty, things are not what they were five years ago. You can't just rely on that, that strategy that worked five years ago. You have to be adaptable to what's working today and that can change rapidly. And number three, you have to be bold. You have to be brave. You have to go and say, you know what? I know that everyone's freaking out right now. I know that the sky is falling, but these principles, because I'm smart and adaptable, they work. So I'm going to lean in and I'm going to make a killing during this period. And if you are those three things, if you are, if you're smart, if you are adaptable, and if you are bold, you are going to emerge from this next recession with millions and millions of dollars. I firmly believe that. Yeah. And, and, and I just, I hope nobody gets scared off because a lot of people, like you, you know, I'm sure you hear it all the time. Oh, I think it's about to crash. So I'm going to wait until I get in. In 2017, yeah. everybody told me, don't start buying real estate right now. It's about to crash. Thank God yeah. I didn't listen to any of them, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, and even if it does crash, like I still want to be in the thick of it when it crashes and be ready for those opportunities, you know? So either yeah. way it's going, I know where, where I'm going, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And now like when I say smart and when I say smart, a, a good example of being smart would be, Hey, I, like 
I'm going to get debt that can, that can withstand the next few years. If we do see higher interest rates or if we see whatever, like if you're locking in like bridge debt, you know, or a hard money loan at, at, you know, whatever, we have a one year plan for, I mean, I, I'll do bridge mm-hmm. debt, but it's got, I got to have five years. Cause like, I don't want to have a one year loan. Cause I don't know what one year looks like from now. So it's the way that you buy properties today. And if you can get 30 year fix, get 30 year fix. Like the way that you knowing that the next few years could be tumultuous. Is that a word? Tumultuous. I don't tumultuous. know. What word. Yeah. We'll go with that one. Uh, knowing it could be rough. Like, let's just plan for that to, to be able to overcome that, to be able to get through it. Average recession is 18 months. So it's not like we're looking, I don't think we're looking at, you know, 20 years here of, of problems. I mean, you know, there have been civilizations and areas that have had 20 years of problems, but I don't see that. Uh, and so instead, I'm just going to be like, okay, how do I buy smart today to overcome all this? 20 years from now, is real estate worth more or less than it is today? regardless of what the next three years do is real estate worth more or less 20 years from now. I think 99% of people would say it's worth more and significantly more. So buy for the long, long term, make your plan, be adaptable and be bold and you'll be fine. Cool. So my next question is a two-parter. So the first part of the question is what's next, what's next for you, you know, financially business wise, open door capital and beyond. Yeah. And and then the second part of that question, you know, we're both in abundance and and Chris Ryan and and everybody in abundance is always talking about from success to significance. So yeah. like with all of the financial and business success you've achieved, I, I would imagine at this point in life, you're kind of starting to look at how do I, how do I transcend the business success into significance? So what does that look like for you in the future? Yeah. So like the number one most important thing when I think of like my future legacy or like what, what, what my, like what, yeah. What will people remember? Like, I, f- I feel like it's all like fairly irrelevant. The only thing that really matters to me is my kid's character. Like do my kids have good character uh, as they grow? That's it. That's the only thing that really matters to me. Uh, that said uh, there are other things that are important, right? Like I, I want, I believe I can multiply my efforts to help more people escape kind of like that, like drudgery of life. Like majority of the world hate their job. The majority of the world uh, are not, ha- or at least Americans hate their job, are not happy in their relationships. They're not happy with their finances. They're stressed out. They're med- heavily medicating uh, usually illegally or, you know, whatever on prescription stuff because they're not happy. Like they live a very unfulfilled life. And I believe that I can make a dent in that uh, in some people's lives um, through intentional living. It's a phrase I use a lot of like, I have the intention journal and like just being intentional, but like you are not in the way. Most people are in the backseat of their life. Like they're getting driven around by just life. And like, it's like a crazy taxi driver, but you can get in the front seat and drive. So one of my passions is just convince more and more people. If I can help millions of people realize that, Oh, you know, you can make a choice. Like I can choose to be different, to, to, to not be depressed, to be in better health, to have a better spiritual life, to be a better father or a better mother, to be wealthier, to not be stressed out and burned out about money. Like if I can help more people with that, then in turn, they help more people with that. Maybe the whole world gets a little bit better. So I'm just trying to make a little dent in the universe that way. But really, if my kids grow up with good character. That's that's it. Awesome. Um, and I've, I've heard you say a handful of times, you don't plan on leaving all your, your money to your kids. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, well, there's a great quote. I can't remember who first said it, but I really liked it. It was like, basically I want my kid, like somebody said, I want my kids to have enough to do something, but not to do nothing. Nothing. Right. Like I don't want my kids like money can wreck people. It really can. Um, especially I want my, yes. Yeah. If you earn it and you know how to keep it great. 
but most people like when you're given money. So yeah, my whole thing is like, I know my wife and I disagree a little bit. She wants to leave the kids something. I don't want to leave them anything. Like if I had my choice, I'd give them nothing, but maybe a property or two and be like, all right, sink or swim. But the thing is my kids won't need to like my, my theory is this when it comes to raising kids, if, if, if my kids can't handle, like if my kids can't build wealth by the time they're 18, they don't, then they don't deserve to have my wealth. Right. And if they can build wealth by the time they're 18 or 20 or whatever, they don't need my wealth. Right. Like it's like, if, if my job for the next 18 years, I like they, how will they not escape the Turner household knowing how to build wealth? (laughs) Like you can't do it. They both own like, we talk about real estate every single day. My daughter owns a fourplex. My son's invested in my fund. Like, and I did that purposely. So they both can have two different approaches to real estate. One more of a DIY approach and one more of an investment approach. And we talk about that. We talk about what it's doing Uh, as they get older, they'll be doing their own math. They'll be doing their own talking to the property managers. Like they won't escape it. And if they choose not to use that knowledge to build their life better, if I have failed them in that, then they don't deserve to have that money anyway. So, you know, it doesn't really matter if they can build it themselves. They won't need my money. So I want to die broke. There is a ton of satisfaction and joy that you Mm -hmm. get in building it yourself. You know, you see tons of trust fund babies, suicide, drugs, you know, all that kind of stuff. Cause they're, they're, they have like the, the joy and fulfillment of building it yourself, the sense of accomplishment, the sense of satisfaction I mean, you're robbing them of that if you just hand it all over. Yeah, agreed. Character is forged through difficult times. Uh, it's it's why, like, I think people should invest in a recession. Character is forged. Good character is forged in bad times. And so when people can, like, if you just give your kids the ability to have no dip, it's like every time your kid fell down when they were learning how to walk, if you like walked over and held them up every time, they would never learn to walk. So difficult times lead to good character. And so I want my kids to develop that. I want them to have sleepless nights. I want them to be confused and not know how to get to the next level of their life. I want them to be like sad because somebody, you know, hurt their feelings. Like it's, it hurts as a parent to have to go through that, but I want them to experience that because that is what's going to develop them into the kind of character that's going to lead them the rest of their life. And so like, I wish bad times onto my kids as much as that hurts me because I know that's what they need to, to survive and to thrive. Awesome. So I want to hop over to our radio round to, uh, you know, just get a little, a couple of questions for our, our listeners. I, I usually say to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better, but I think most of our listeners know you pretty well. So um, the first question is what's your favorite book? Ooh, that's a hard, that's just a hard question. Um, I'm one of those guys that my favorite book is always the book I'm reading right now. <laughs> so uh, it's always like, this is the best book ever, but let me throw a few that have been life-changing both like years ago that changed my life. And then on a, on a current level right now that I'm reading. Uh, so uh, rich dad, poor dad, obviously it put words to like, this like groaning in my soul that I felt that was wrong with the world. And then I read rich dad, poor dad. I'm like, that's it. That's what was wrong with the world. Uh, so I read that one. That was a big impact Cash flow quadrant. I didn't get when I read it the first time, but looking back, it made probably one of the biggest impact on my life. Uh, was cash flow quadrant also by Kiyosaki. Uh, the book 80, 20 sales and marketing by Perry Marshall. I mentioned it earlier. That book made a big impact on how I think about my time and how I spend my time, uh, in terms of like hiring other people to do tasks because my 
time is better spent doing higher dollar per hour tasks. So that would have made a big impact. The four hour work week was super inspirational for realizing that life doesn't have to be the prescription of what the world has made it to be, which is that work, you know, 50 hours a week during the best weeks of your year, best years of your life until you're 60 years old and you have a nice convertible and you're on your fourth wife and <laughs> then your life's over, right? Like that just sounds like a terrible life. And I like, again, like Rich Dad Poor Dad, it prescribed or it showed there was a different way out there. So those are some of the impactful books from my past. Um, a little bit more current, uh, the book, The One Thing, really helped me focus on a few things that matter versus trying to do everything well. Uh, the One Thing from Gary Keller and Jay Papazan. Uh, a recent addition, uh, I really liked uh, $100 million offers from Alex Hermosi. Uh, it's, it's not a real estate book, but it's a very much like this is how you can sell and make a ton of money by being very specific to a certain type of person. I really liked that one a lot. Um, uh, the crisis comfort, I think it's sorry, the comfort crisis. Uh, I can't remember the author of that one, but the comfort crisis just, it was a huge, it was a great book all about just the ridiculous amount of comfort that we, especially Americans find ourselves in and why that's killing us. Uh, that was really good. And, uh, I'm reading beyond order from Jordan Peterson right now. And I really, really am enjoying that a lot as well. Awesome. I, I'll, I'm, I was going to start making a list, but I'm going to just get it back after we have <laughs> Oh, I got one more. I got one more for you. Made a big impact. Life and air. It's like millionaire, but with the word life, like life and air. Uh, yeah, that book made a big impact on me because they life and air had this really interesting approach. It basically said, look, the, the, the rules of the game uh, are def like, okay, sorry. The way you play the game is, is, decided by the goal of the game. So if the goal of the game is to collect all, all the, the monopoly pieces, like all the properties, you're going to play a certain way. If the goal of monopoly was actually to end up with the most times around the board, you're going to play a different way. If the goal was to get as the you know, if, if the goal in poker was to get as many red cards as possible, right? You, like the goal of the game defines how you play. So they pose this interesting question. They say, okay, well, what is the goal of life? is the goal of life to make as much money as possible. That's the way that most of us are playing the game. Most of us play the game as if the goal is to make as much money as possible. But what if that's not the goal? Then we have to play a different way. And that's what life and air, if the goal of life is instead to have the greatest life possible, that changes everything. It changes how we play the game and things like, well, you shouldn't, you know, you should always use leverage in real estate from a mathematical standpoint, if the goal of life is to get as rich as possible, yes, leverage will get you there faster. But if the goal of life is not to get as rich as possible, if it's to have the most stress, the best life, <laughs> then the, I'm not saying you should use leverage or should use it. I'm just saying like, yeah, wrap it inside of what the goal of your life is rather than just some pre-described goal of getting rich. And uh, that book changed my thinking a lot as well. Awesome. What is your favorite uh, quote? Oh, uh, Michael Jordan once said, some people wish it would happen, others want it to happen, and others make it happen. That's always been one of my favorite quotes. Uh, and closely related to that, uh, Jim Rohn said, uh, if you really want something, you'll find a way. If not, you'll find an excuse. And I, yeah. I catch myself making excuses a lot. I mean, little things like, you know, like last night, like my mother-in-law made cookies and she's visiting right now. And so she and my daughter made cookies and I go in the kitchen and I ate five of them. Like <laughs> if I really wanted to be healthy, I'd find a way. Instead, I was like, well, I've been really stressed and I've been doing a lot of work. And, <laughs> and I had all these excuses of why that was okay in the time to eat five cookies. Uh, but at the end of the day, it just comes down to, no, I just didn't want it bad enough. Like I just didn't want it. Sure. Like some people get in shape because they really want it. Instead, I find excuses. 
Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> so what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Mm. I mean, I love playing with the kids. Uh, I do a lot of that. I like jujitsu a lot. I'm a big yeah. fan of that. I like surfing though. I don't do it very often anymore. Uh, but just travel in general is, is always a good time. I love traveling with my family and it's hard, but it's fun. And are you, did you say you were about to do a, a triathlon? I, well, sort of, I did, I did one a couple of weeks ago. I did a, but it was a relay one where I only had to do one leg of it. I had to do the swim. Where so I had that? to swim for 45 minutes and then I was done. Uh, and then it was a half, a half Ironman. So it was fine. It was fun. I, I did Is a triathlon. One in a Coeur it was, yeah, it was one in Coeur d'Alene. So I did the one, in, I did the half in Coeur d'Alene and oh, my nice. brother did. And my, my mom actually did the swim portion of the relay. And so the funny thing about, about it, Coeur d'Alene versus, you know, I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It is as flat as it could possibly be. So we, you know, we train and we ride on flat ground here. And then I went yep. to Coeur d'Alene to, and I, I almost died. I mean, just going up the hills. I didn't yeah. like, it was so hard bicycling uphill. I didn't know you could go that slow without falling over. It was, <laughs> it was hard. That is hilarious. Yeah. It's uh, it is a hilly ride. Uh, I don't envy my buddy, Nate, who did that part of it or Brian who did the run. I got the easy part. The swim was, you know, it is. And it's such a easy. beautiful lake to swim in. It's so clear. It yeah. So, yeah, you know, what's uh, funny. You know, what's funny about that though. I got a, I got a, I got a quick story on my, on my triathlon right. swim. All right. So I did this swim, the relay part, the swim part of a half triathlon, right? So I had to swim like 1.2 miles. Right. And I didn't, I only had a few weeks to train for this thing. Cause like, I wasn't supposed to do it. And like, uh, my buddy who was doing the relay, he, he had, his swimmer had to back out. So I had to jump in at the last second. I only actually practiced three times swimming, uh, before the event. And I didn't swim in years before that. So here I am like pretty much unprepared to do it. And I get in the water and I mean, I, I, I'd, I'd done a triathlon years ago, so I knew how to do it. Right. So it's a mile, 1.2 total miles. It's 0.6 out there. Right. And 0.6 back. And there's like these buoys, these gigantic buoys set up every, whatever it is, I don't know, hundred feet or hundred yards. I don't know. Just, there's like 10 of them on the way there. So I get in the water and I start swimming. And right before I got in the water, one of my partners who we were swimming with, he mentioned something. I, I made some joke about how when I swim, it's actually pretty easy because I only use my arms. I don't use my legs to swim. And he laughed. He said, what do you mean you don't use your legs to swim? I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't kick. I just, they, they kind of drag behind and don't do much at all. That's how I actually learned how to swim. They call it immersion swimming. And he's like, well, maybe you'd be a little faster if you swim with your legs. And I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, you're probably right. Okay, so I'll swim with my legs today. So I'm, I get in the water, I start kicking, I start paddling, and I just, within the first 10 seconds, I'm, I'm like struggling. Like I can't get my rhythm down. And I'm like, what's going on? And I look ahead and it's like half a mile out there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so, how am I gonna do this? And I started freaking out a little bit in my head going, I'm not gonna be able to do this. Like, I'm not gonna make it, I might die. Or I'm gonna go so slow that they're gonna disqualify me because I'm not gonna get through the thing. So here I am, I'm just paddling harder and and harder and kicking as hard as I can. And I'm just like, I can't, I'm just dying. Like, I'm just like, I can't even go underwater for three seconds or even a second. And I'm out of breath and I'm like, okay, okay. Stop, stop freaking out. Just focus on the next buoy. It's just right there. Focus on the buoy. Stop thinking about the finish line. That's going to destroy me. Just think about the buoy, right? Which is good advice. So usually, so I'm like, okay, buoy right there. I start paddling. Can't do it. I'm like dying. I'm like, <gasps> like, I'm just freaking out in the water and I cannot figure out. I mean, I've swam before. I swam three times before this and I never had a problem. I swam for an hour. Like the, 
week previous. I'm like, is it the cold water I'm not used to? Is I'm wearing a wetsuit, I'm not used to the extra resistance. Something is really messing me up here. Uh, I get all the way to the end. So I get a half mile there and I'm like, I, I didn't know how I was going to get back. I'm like, this is <laughs> the worst thing I have ever done. And so everyone's passing me up. I'm going so slow. I'm literally going so incredibly slow. And finally I was like, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm done. Like focusing on the ne next buoy. I don't want to do that either. I'm like, all I'm going to do is go back to what I know works. I'm going to stop kicking. I'm just going to let my feet dangle like, uh, like they're dead. And I'm just going to do what I do best, which is stroke, stroke, breath and forget the feet. And I start going. And all of a sudden I realize I can paddle just fine. I can breathe just fine. I got my rhythm. And all of a sudden I look over and I'm passing people in the water and I'm like, <laughs> what is going on? I'm like, breath, you know, like face down. It's like arm, arm, breath, arm, arm, breath, right? Or whatever. Like I, and I'm like, all of a sudden I got my rhythm and I start, I forget the buoys and I just start going to the exit. And I like, I just get in the zone and before long, I'm almost to the end. Now at one point I ended up, I'm like, cause I'm not looking at the buoys. I'm like a hundred feet away from everyone else in the water. I'm like in the middle of the lake and I'm like, Oh shoot. So I go back to the buoy. So the buoys exist for a reason to keep you on the path towards the goal, but the buoys aren't the goal. The, the goal isn't the goal. The goal is the rhythm breath, yeah. breath, or like arm, arm, breath. And as long as I focus on just the rhythm and I focus on what I know worked, which is what had worked for me in the past. As long as I didn't get the shiny object of kicking my feet and what everybody else says I should do, I know what works. So I'm going to, if I stick to that, then I was just flying. And I finished in like, like about, I don't know, it was like 30 seconds longer than I did in my first triathlon where I had trained for seven weeks ahead of time. I finished in almost the exact same time. And had I focused on the rhythm, the first half of that, I probably had to cut 15 minutes off my time. Like it was insane how fast I went the second half. The reason I tell this story is because of how true this is for life and business in so many ways, right? Like it's not about the goal. The goal is important because otherwise you end up in the middle of the lake. The benchmarks are important. The quarterly goals, the bench, like where you had it, those are important to keep an eye on every once in a while, look up, know where the buoy is and keep going. That's why like at Open Door Capital, we do weekly calls. Like we have a quick weekly check-in. How are you doing? But what matters is the rhythm. It's the boring things you do over and over and over and over and you just get into a rhythm. It's the rhythm that takes you to the goal. But you, if you focus on the goal or the benchmarks, it's just going to get you exhausted. It's going to have you leave. And then finally, last the thing I learned there is, yeah, other people will tell you other ways to do things. Oh, no, you, you really should do more Facebook ads. Oh, no, you should actually get in the syndication. No, you should do this thing. This actually will make you more money. Did you know like this guy over here, he made a ton of money doing this approach, right? And all of a sudden you start trying to do what other people are doing rather than what you know works for you and what works for you. And it, it doesn't really matter. Like I could have learned to swim the other way, but I knew what worked for me. And so once I just got back to the basics, focus on the rhythm of what I knew worked, then I got to the end. And the last half of that race was so easy. And I just like, I just, I, I want to get back in the water again. Cause I'm like, I want to prove that I can like do this in under 30 minutes. Cause I'm like, man, like now I know. So just my advice to everybody out there is don't get distracted by the shiny objects. Don't get overwhelmed by the goal. That's a mile or two away. And don't get, you know, overwhelmed by the benchmarks. Like those are there to keep you on track. And that's it. Focus on the rhythm. You just described every time I get in the water, 
and half the time I'm out of it. So no, I a hundred percent agree. Um, I, I, when I jumped in the water for the first time, I would run several marathons and I thought, you know, how hard is it going to be to swim? I couldn't swim halfway. I had to get a coach I, yeah. like, as a 30 year old adult. You know, I'm thinking like I swam as a kid. I had to, I had to get a coach to learn how to breathe properly to literally swim yep. from one side of the pool to the other. And then you get in that, that cold crazy? water in Coeur d'Alene and it shocks you. <laughs> yep. Oh, geez. Yeah, it's cold. <laughs> well, and I, I'm glad you brought that point up, right? Because that's another thing. I did not get a coach. I like how much effort would I have saved by having one 30 minute conversation with a coach ahead of time? Like just like somebody who's been there, done that can give me the quick and look like, like, oh yeah, don't kick do this instead. Like, like somebody just like, that's what the value in business. Like sometimes we just, I mean, in fact, I'm, I'm guilty of this myself. Like lately we've been trying to do this big raise right now for a big deal that we're doing. And it's a big raise and it's a hard time to raise money right now. And I've been kind of struggling with it. Right. And then one of my buddies was like, well, you're in town with Ken McElroy. I mean, Ken McElroy is like the, the godfather of syndication. Like he wrote a bunch of books on it. He's sure. Kiyosaki's like best friend. Like Ken's like the man when it comes to syndication, he's raised so much money and been successful. He's like, you've been, you in the same town as Ken, you've been hanging out with Ken. Have you once asked Ken his advice? And I was like, no, not once. I did not ask the guy who's like the main guy in the he world. The I should ABCs ask of real He wrote the ABCs <laughs> of real estate investing. And he's in town with me. We're hanging out on a boat. And it never once occurred to me to ask him, Hey, this is what I'm doing right now any advice for me. So yesterday I went to lunch with Ken. It was probably the most life-changing two hour conversation of my, like I've ever, I've ever had. It was life changing. I think in one conversation, he completely changed the direction that opened our capital is going to head in the future and how we're going to raise money because just he's brilliant. And I'm like, why didn't I just ask, why don't I ask more people, smart people things like right now? Why don't I ask somebody smart? And why not like how to not eat those five cookies on the counter? Like ask people, that's what they're, they're there for. People love to help. So ask. Awesome. So how can our listeners find out more about you, follow you, invest with ODC? Hmm. Uh, yeah. I, so if you want to follow me and watch my TikTok dances, I'm at Beardy Brandon on TikTok. I'm just kidding. I don't dance, but I am on Beardy Brandon, like beard with the Y at the end, Beardy Brandon on Instagram and TikTok. I'm most active on Instagram. That's kind of my favorite platform, but I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and all that. Uh, just look for Brandon Turner. And then if you want to look at my company, what we're doing there, even if you don't want to invest ever, you just want to see how we do things. I advise everyone to do that is like, go get on a bunch of syndicators lists. If you want to syndicate someday, or you want to get into the big deals, see how they do things, how they market, how they talk to people, how they, uh, you know, write their copy and all that. Anyway, odcfund.com, odcfund.com. We put the fun in fund. I'm just kidding. That's not our, that's not our slogan, but I like it. It's either that or like we put the D in fund, but that's also weird. So, you know. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Brad. Appreciate everything you do. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at Rent Roll Radio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestworthcapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing.